0: Father, through weak, fallible human words, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Recently, Jude had to go to the doctor, and he had to get four shots. I think he takes after me because he doesn't like it too much. After getting his shots, he kept telling us about his hurt that he got at the doctor. A 15 month old can't really understand why it is that we need shots, and to be honest with you I'm 26 and still figuring it out. A shot hurts temporarily, but the beauty of it is that it protects us from more serious and long term hurts. It seems counterintuitive, but it's a pattern that's deeply ingrained in our life experiences. For example, uh, students undergo a similar phenomenon. Most of them would rather not exercise uh, this temporary self discipline required to be successful, but when they do, they typically do better academically. Today, in our lessons, we see that participation in the divine life is often similar. We undergo what is unpleasant for our growth as we become more and more like him, and in that pattern, we see the call and heart of the Christian life. Our Old Testament and Gospel lessons play off of each other by setting up a contrast. If you read the rest of or the preceding context in 1 Kings 9, uh, you find Elijah very discouraged, even though he served God for most of his life. He's sort of down in the dumps at this point in his ministry. He's getting older, and he begins to feel like a failure. Israel is still being run by the wicked Ahab and Jezebel. And so where is God in all of this, he probably wonders? Is God unable to dispose of this wicked ruler? So immediately before our reading today is that kind of infamous story where God appears to Elijah, not in the violent wind or in the seismic earthquake or the burning flame, but in the small, still voice. And this morning's lesson comes directly after that encounter. God gives Elijah a threefold commission. He is to appoint Hazael, king of Syria which is a big deal, because in the ancient Near East, countries and regions had their own gods, and each god in their minds could really only exert sovereignty in their own domains. So the idea of the God of Israel appointing the king of Syria sort of transgresses some of the boundaries that they had constructed, but it's making the point that God is God over all. In the New Testament, we see something similar, and Romans 13, when Paul instructs us to be subjected to governing authorities because God has appointed them, not just Israel's kings, but all kings. Then, after he anoints Hazael king of Syria, he is to anoint Jehu king of Israel. Finally, after years of struggle, God is replacing the wicked rulers of Ahab and Jezebel. And then finally, Elijah is to go and anoint Elisha, a prophet, in his place, which is odd because prophets in the Old Testament typically weren't anointed the way that you would anoint a king or a priest. I think this is God rewarding Elijah for his long years of faithfulness. He gets a mentee, someone who will carry on his mantle, literally, So Elijah goes and finds Elisha, just like he was instructed by God, and he throws his mantle over Elisha, which is a symbolic appointing. In response, Elisha, who is working in the fields, requests to go back to his parents so that he can say goodbye. And Elijah's response is vague and kind of confusing. He says, go back again, for what have I done to you? So as best as I can surmise from the Hebrew and some research, there are kind of two layers to this phrasing. Elijah, in saying go back again, is functionally saying do as you like. And then he asks for what have I done to you, which kind of reflects his own pessimism. Taken together, it's like Elijah is saying enjoy this brief reprieve before reality sets in. I'm sorry I had this to to do this to you, so enjoy your free time while you still can. Elijah knew what Elisha was called to do because he was someone who had been called to the same task, and he knew that it wouldn't be easy or light. Our Luke reading then is replete with imagery that harkens back to Elijah and Elisha. So as Jesus Christ sets his face towards Jerusalem, he's rejected by the Sumerians. The Assyrians, uh, the group that destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, would often displace the people that they conquered by shipping them to foreign lands. So the Samaritans were a group of people that ultimately came from some foreign country, but uh, had intermixed with the Jews who remained in the land. So they were Jewish in a sense, but only halfway so. They were sort of like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses of Christianity or the Muggles of Harry Potter. So they had a kind of tumultuous relationship with full Jews, where, despite technically having the same religion, they were viewed as half-breeds or less than, and they did have some doctrinal differences that made them sort of schismatic. Because the Samaritans reject Jesus, James and John indignantly ask if Jesus wants them to command fire on the whole lot of them, which sounds like a Peter request more than a James and John request, but I guess they're not perfect either. On the one hand, this is highly, a, a highly disturbing way of responding to people with whom you disagree. It's also kind of comical because in reality, James and John have no control over the elements that they're asking if Jesus wants them to invoke over the Samaritans. Only God does. So what they're proposing to do for Jesus here is way above their pay grade. And of course, Jesus says no and rebukes them for even thinking that this was a good idea. But fun fact, Jesus does miracles with every element in the New Testament except for fire. It's like fire is being saved for the consummation of all things at the end of time when there's this kind of ultimate purgation and cleansing. But the idea of calling fire on one's enemies harkens back to two instances in the Elijah and Elisha stories. In 1 Kings 18.38, Elijah calls down fire on his altar after the prophets of Baal proved to be impotent at affecting their god to do the same. Because as Elijah taunts them, maybe your god is just in the bathroom or maybe he's asleep. And the other instance of fire calling is in 2 Kings 1 where Elijah sends fire on a group of 50 soldiers who are taking messengers for the wicked king of Israel to go inquire of the pagan god Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, about what the fate of the sick king would be. So Elijah does call fire down there. But Jesus doesn't do this, though. In this regard, he's different than Elijah. He will come with fire, as John the Baptist testifies at the beginning of John, but in a cosmic way, at the end of all things. So, after Jesus leaves the Samaritans, who flat out rejected him, someone, and we don't really know who, the narrative doesn't fill it in for us, comes to Jesus wanting to follow him. Instead of saying, Hey, that's great, glad to have you on board, sign up here, Jesus is honest. Foxes have no holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he calls someone else, and they request to go bury their father. To which Jesus says, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then finally, another person comes to Jesus who is interested and says he wants to follow. But first he needs to go back and say goodbye to his parents. Does that sound familiar? Because that's exactly what Elisha did when Elijah called him. And instead of doing what Elijah did for Elisha and saying, sure, go ahead. It's going to be really hard. So enjoy this time with your family now. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The image there is that when one is plowing, if one looks back, you can't plow straight. You'll be crooked. I was mowing the lawn yesterday, checked my phone. And realized that I had, <laughs> you so same idea. So I should probably repent because I may not be fit for the kingdom of God. What is Jesus doing here? It's twofold. The first is that he's saying that the gospel has to be everything or nothing. You don't get to plow while looking wherever you want. The gospel demands our full attention. It demands to be the center of everything. Our whole life should revolve around it. It's not another compartment. It is holistic. It seeps into every part of our being. There is no other concern. Second, and tangentially related, is that because the gospel takes a place of primacy in our lives, it reorganizes everything. That's not always a pleasant experience. It's like getting a shot. It's like having a bone reset. It hurts temporarily. It's unpleasant. And the Christian life is not a glamorous one, but it is what we are called to. It reminds me of Matthew 13, 45-46, which is the parable of the pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. It is his consuming passion— Everything is disposable in light of this calling. But what does this look like to live in this way? This is what Paul talks about in the book of Galatians. If you remember back to last week, the purpose of Galatians is how to discuss how Jews and Gentiles can live together in the same family of God, despite their many differences. In the portion right before this, Paul hearkens back to the Hagar and Sarah story in Genesis, to point out that Hagar, a slave woman, was like the Mosaic law, while Sarah, a free woman, is like life under the Spirit, which brings freedom. So we should seek to live like Sarah and not like Hagar. The gospel, according to Paul, sets us free from worldly powers, from sin, from, the de- from death, from the devil, and the law. The law is a yoke of slavery. One doesn't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. Rather than following all the commands of the Torah, all 600 plus of them, worrying about which dietary restrictions we should keep, what sacrifices we should go offer, uh, whether we should have parapets around the ceilings of our houses, things like that, uh, the entire law is filled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The call of Christians is to be a people for others. This ethic is not achieved through following the law, you see this in the Old Testament where the Israelites would check off all of the external boxes of, oh, I offered this sacrifice on the right day, I tied this amount of money to the temple, but then they would go treat their neighbors, uh, especially the poor and the oppressed, uh, horribly, and they were often judged for it. Isaiah 1, Isaiah tells the people that uh, God doesn't desire your sacrifices. He requires, he requires an obedient heart and one that would love, uh, love God and do justice. The law is not regenerative. Even if you kept all 600 plus laws in the Torah, it would not change your fundamental being, which is someone who is opposed to God, an active rebellion against him. It cannot produce life. The only thing that can produce life is the Spirit who gives that life to us in baptism. So as a result, the Spirit and flesh flesh, which is an agent of sin and death, at least in Galatians, are virulently opposed to one another in a constant zero-sum conflict. Right? You can't have both spirit and flesh, according to Paul. You have to have one or the other. To have both would be to plow while looking back. As a result, we know that we're not living in the Spirit if we're participating in acts of the flesh. And Paul gives us a nice list that we can use to check our behavior against. So, for example, if you are doing fornication or acting impurely or with licentiousness or committing idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, uh, the RSV says party spirit, uh, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like, you know that you are not participating in the divine life. Those who belong to Christ, those who are baptized, have been crucified to these desires and raised to walk in a new divine life. And the mark of that life is to be guided by the Spirit, marked by the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul says, against these there is no law. So today... As we approach the Lord's table, let us go, praying that he would give us the strength that we need to follow his guidance and live by those fruit of the Spirit, to live our baptism. That ability and strength are divine gifts. They're not something that we drum up inside of ourselves on our own power. We don't. It's not a question of whether you've believed hard enough uh, and then can go produce those works, but rather the Spirit working in you produces those works. Still, we need to answer when we're called, not asking to go back and bury our father or to say goodbye to our family. We go where we're called because as we are reminded in our collect, he orders all things. He puts us away from all that is ultimately hurtful and gives us what is profitable. And in the moment, phenomenologically speaking, when, when you're in the middle of this process, it doesn't always feel that way. It can feel scary. It can feel dangerous. It can feel like maybe you are going uh, into a situation that can ultimately harm you. But if you are following his spirit and you're yielding his fruits, then you're doing what you need to do, and God is working in you. And we can have full faith in that, even if in a given moment it doesn't appear to be true. There is this sort of weird tension in today's readings. In Kings, the commission of Elisha is a divine work. God tells Elijah to go do it. In the psalm that we read, the psalmist says, In you I take refuge, I have no good apart from you. And in Galatians, Paul talks about how we are passively freed from the law. Right? We didn't do anything, but Christ did something, and we are freed as a result of that. Yet later in Galatians, Paul exhorts his readers to live a life in the Spirit, and Jesus tells us that no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So these instances highlight an age-old debate. Is the primary actor in the Christian life God, or is it man? And in a sense, both. God accomplishes redemption for us, something we are incapable of doing ourselves. He brings us into divine life, but once we are there as members of his church, we are called to follow him, to participate with him, to yield to his spirit so that we might produce these fruit. So may you dwell in this this tension, and may all our lives be deeply enriched by his Holy Spirit as our guide. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.